name is Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. All right, so hello everyone. This is Jimbo Paris. Welcome to the Jimbo Paris Show, and today we have Andrew Hoofman, and he is a lead scientist, and he's also in charge of materials and behavior at GE Research. Seems like an interesting guy. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, Jimbo. So great to join you. Great. It really is a pleasure to see you. And can you kind of tell me a bit about what you specifically do? Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes I wonder that every day because every day comes as a surprise. I think that's that's my favorite part of my job. Just kind of a description of, of where I work. So I work for GE Research. Everybody's heard of GE, right? They buy the light bulbs, they buy the refrigerators, they see the little logo, but I think a lot of people don't know what GE actually is. So at its core, our business is focused on three main primary commercial businesses. Um, one is healthcare. So that includes things like ultrasound machines, MRI machines. Another business is aviation. So we build a lot of jet engines, both for the military, but also you know commercial aviation. And then our other business is our power business. So that includes renewable energy, so wind turbines. That includes gas power, so gas turbines. And that also includes nuclear, which is a lot of my focus, working on nuclear power. So one of the interesting things about my job is I work for our, our research center, which integrates with all of our businesses. And our businesses can come to us with a, an issue or a new idea, and they can say, hey, we want to build the next jet engine. And what we do in, for example, our materials group is we take that information and we say, how can we make this engine run hotter with these materials? So let's come up with a new type of material or a new type of coating that can enable the materials to survive in a new environment. And so a lot of our work kind of is dynamic in that we try and find issues before they happen and try and fix those problems before they happen. And it's all about being able to think two ways. So a conventional scientist, like a professor at university, they're going to focus on science, which is all about the why and the how does the universe work. And then there's the engineers, which are focused very much so on, okay, this is the application, let's make it work. So how big is this thing going to be? Or, you know, let's make the drawings and figure out how to machine it. Our job is kind of to bridge that gap. So a lot of my job is conversing with people on the application side and kind of conversing with people on the science side to try and make those two things into something real. And that's probably my favorite part of my job is that it's very interdisciplinary, but it's also, you get to see the, the detailed, like the engineering on one side, which is extremely what some people might view as pedantic where, you know, it's okay. We already know how this works. We just got to figure out how to build it. And then I also get to work with the people who a lot of people view the scientists as, oh, these guys had their heads in the clouds. They're not applied at all. They don't know why they're doing this. They're just doing it for the sake of science. Being able to work in between those two realms is really satisfying because you get to make a lot of fun discoveries, but at the same time, you get to make sure that at the end of the day, you're building a product that benefits humanity. You kind of gave me the history of your career, but how long did you spend in university considering, like you spent 10 years there. Yep. How was it like during those 10 years? Exactly. So I, I had a very different path, I think, than what most people had. When I first started my undergraduate, 
I was kind of young out of high school. I was, I graduated high school young. I started college at 16 and it was a blessing and a curse. I think a lot of people view that as, oh, this is a guy who's super smart and he knows what he's doing. But I think it's just the opposite. I think we equate this intelligence in the classroom with intelligence about life. So when I came to college, I made a lot of mistakes about what classes to take and how to treat school and even studying. You know, I was used to high school and then you get to college and high school, it's very regimented. You know, you have this assignment due at this date, this assignment due at this date. College, it's kind of teaching you to be an independent person. And so throughout college, I made a lot of mistakes about taking the wrong classes, not being able to graduate soon enough. And I pivoted a lot. So I started out as... Um, wanting to study physics because that's what I thought I was interested in. I took physics in high school, had a lot of fun with it. Then I decided, well, I probably don't want to do physics. Let me switch over to computer science. So then I took a bunch of computer science classes. I hated coding because it was just, for me, really boring. And then I ended up deciding, okay, well, let me do biochemistry. So then I took a lot of uh, chemistry classes. I actually really enjoyed them, uh, but it wasn't really... It wasn't that it factor I was looking for. And then I ended up pivoting back to physics. And what I loved about physics was in my physics classes, all these other classes, whether you're taking electrical engineering or chemistry or biology, there's always more why, 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 why. And I always wanted to know why. Why is this thing happening? And it came down to, well, I need to do the physics first so I can understand, for example, the chemistry. And you have to understand the chemistry to do the biology. And so I said, okay, I'm going to finish up with a physics degree. I really like physics. And um, it took me five or six, I think it took me five and a half or six years to finish my undergraduate degree. And then it was kind of something very similar when I went to graduate school. And I started with wanting to do a PhD in physics. I had some difficulties with, you know, projects. The way it works in graduate school is typically you'll have, you know, research grant and a professor with a research grant. And for whatever reason, all of these projects that I was on, they either lost funding or they were ending or the professor moved to a different university. So I was always having to shift, shift, shift. I got tired of always shifting. So I ended up deciding, okay, well, let me switch to nuclear engineering now. That's what I really want to do with my physics degree is get into this nuclear world because I thought it was really fascinating. So I ended up moving to nuclear engineering. I was working for Idaho National Lab as part of my research project, going to nuclear engineering classes during the day and then working on my my physics research to finish up a master's degree in physics at nighttime. So it was kind of like 16-hour days of, you know, you're working till 4 a.m., go take a nap, go to class at 10, you know, and then go get your work done and then come back to class at 6. And it was just kind of this cycle of just go, 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 go. Then I ended up just not liking the research that I was doing. I was doing what we call neutronics, which is analyzing how the neutrons interact within a nuclear reactor. So a nuclear reactor, basically you have a chain reaction. And when we talk about neutronics, that's controlling that chain reaction in a very controlled manner. I didn't really like doing it. I thought it was kind of boring. So I went to a seminar one day and this professor was talking about nuclear materials and materials research. Materials research is basically studying materials. So things like metals and ceramics, it's understanding how to design new types of um, metals and ceramics and polymers to build things out of. So I saw his presentation. I went, talked to him and I said, hey, I'm really interested in this. Uh, 
you know, do you mind if I join your research group? And lo and behold, I joined that research group. I found my passion. That was like the it I was looking for. And then I just became a metallurgist after that. And then when I joined GE, I joined as a metallurgist. And what's funny is now I actually um, have a project now with Department of Energy developing a, a novel radiation source uh, similar to healthcare imaging. So with healthcare, you have radiation coming in and then you'll have a detector on the other side. And basically you're looking for how much of that radiation got absorbed in the body. Well, the same way we're using that same kind of scheme where we have a radiation source, it interacts with some material um, like a, a used nuclear fuel rod. And then you have a detector on the backside and you can see how much radiation gets absorbed. So you know how much of, for example, uranium or plutonium you have in that nuclear fuel. And again, that's getting back to my physics background. The long story short of my career that I really want to emphasize to people is I think a lot of people think you go to college, you get a degree and you're stuck with whatever you go for. And my fiance also had that mindset where she was always afraid to study something in school because she thought, okay, I'm stuck with that one thing. You know, what I've learned is if you really are passionate about something, even if you pivot later in life, it's never too late. Just find your passion. And that passion is what's going to drive you to be successful. At least that's how it's worked in my life. So what were sort of the notable experiences you've had throughout your career? I think one of the things that I've, I've really, I wouldn't say is notable in of itself per se, but I've, I've experienced a lot of adversity. So working with difficult people, you know, when you're losing funding or when people are under pressure, it makes it a whole different environment. What made me so successful now at GE was learning to deal with difficult situations. And for example, for me, when I, when I joined this nuclear materials research group, I was in Idaho. I was studying at Idaho State University. Within about six months of joining that research group, my advisor had asked me, hey, I'm moving to Missouri. I'm going to transfer there. I'm going to be a professor there. I want you to come with me. And for somebody who's well-established, I had lived in Idaho for, you know, five years. I had friends there. It was pretty much, you know, my friends were family to me at that point. I was planning on working for the National Lab for the rest of my life in Idaho. And I just wanted to be in Idaho. That was a big move for me to move from Idaho to Missouri. And doing that, I think, was just kind of a, a growth opportunity. So I've done a lot of that moving around from place to place and seen a lot of different people in different cultures. And for me, that's really helped me to open up my eyes to understanding the world differently. And so I, I don't want to say that it's been one experience. It's been the variety of experiences that I've had. I was able to go to Finland as part of my job. We actually had the meeting in the exact town where my, my ancestors grew up. So that's where my grandparents grew up was in that town in Finland. Okay. And, and being able to go and experience that culture. And, and for me, every experience that I've had, it's all about connecting to not just the world, the physical world around you, which people think of when, you know, you think of a scientist, oh, this is a guy exploring the world from a scientific perspective. But I really like exploring it from like a people and a cultural perspective. And I think the key to being a great scientist is understanding other people's viewpoints. It's an emotional experience because I view that as the world around me is, is people, cultures, it's atoms, whatever it is, it's an exciting emotional experience. And 
being able to be part of that is just really, it's humbling and exciting all at the same time. So you have a very, very interesting take on this. You know, who would have thought, you know, science, emotion, a lot of the advice you give can also just be applied to just working with people in general. When I was listening to you speak, I'll say this right now, you know, you're a very good uh, storyteller, you know. Um, do you think other scientists, you know, have the same skill set too? Do you think in this day and age, scientists need to be, as you would put it, uh, diverse, dynamic in both, you know, communication and emotion and science as a whole? Is everything really connected? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you. I, I really appreciate that, that comment. But I, I think that's the key because I, a lot of people think being a good scientist is being in the lab playing with beakers. And while that's absolutely true, I think there's a role for everybody to play, right? When the government says, hey, we have this need for this type of you know, research, they, they release these what they call funding announcements. And everybody, you know, universities or research labs, everybody can apply for that, that funding. And the way that works is you write a proposal. You have to write a research proposal. And that proposal is all about telling a story. You kind of have to be really good at that anecdotal story because that's how people understand from a high level, right? What I love about my job is I love storytelling. I love to hear my own voice, shamelessly. But at the same time, it's creating that story is really creative and you get to get into this abstract creative world. And a lot of people don't think that scientists are super abstract, but absolutely we are because it's all about imagining the unimaginable. You know, and you know, that's like our GE slogan is, you know, taking imagination to reality. But the truth is that's absolutely what it is. Somebody gives you a problem and they say, hey, this is impossible to do. And then creating a story of how to get there is the most exciting part, I think. How did you find your passion in your field and kind of maybe provide a bit of a roadmap on how you did that? That's a really good question. I'm lucky because early on in life, so my mom is a big inspiration to me. My mom was a cytogeneticist. So if you don't know what a cytogeneticist is, that's somebody who studies um, chromosomes. So chromosomes is your genetic makeup. Those are basically the compounds that store all the information. So growing up with her as a mom, I was homeschooled for a lot of uh, my childhood. And so she had a really heavy influence on, again, making things personable. She had this little way of explaining how the chromosomes work and the different proteins work to separate the chromosomes. And they were all these little diagrams and little cartoons as if they were little people. And that was really exciting for me because I said, okay, I can imagine another world now. I can kind of daydream into this microscopic world of chromosomes. And that's what really inspired me when I was younger is I said, hey, look, there's all of these problems in the world. Like when I was younger, I wanted to find the, what, what I would deem the cure for the common cold, right? I wanted to say, hey, all viruses, I want to eradicate them. Or, you know, I was trying to come up with ways of how do we generate clean water? How do we figure out all of these other issues that are going on in the world? And, you know, when I grew up, it was over 30 years ago. So different problems than what we have today. But, you know, if I grew up today, it would be all about you know, how do I solve climate change? And it was all about taking on these really big challenges. As I tried to take on the big challenges, I ended up looking into the, the little details. And I said, well, how do we get started? All of these things that I was looking into before, like the chemistry classes and the physics classes and all of that, all of them connect in this one field. And material science is a very diverse interdisciplinary field. 
And that's what really made me love it is that I could work with so many people across so many different domains using so many different types of instruments and experiments. And that's kind of what drove me to it. So my passion really came from trying things, I think, to distill it down to one sentence is just try stuff. If you don't like it, that's fine. Move on. I don't think anybody's going to judge anybody for saying, you know, if you tried it, you don't like it. Nobody will disrespect. You. But you have to try it once to know that you don't like it. And if you really want to discover what you love, try a bunch of things and then figure out which one of those things was just so easy. It came so easy to you that you would just do it a million times without thinking because you just love doing it. And that's what I do every day. Like I don't come into work. I work overtime all the time. And it has nothing to do with the fact that anybody mandates me to do it. It's because it's I'm so excited. I come in here. I work with such a great team. Like the team that I have is basically I consider them family. Um, and I treat them like family. And when you have that kind of an environment, it's so easy to be passionate because number one, you're doing what you love and it could be anything. If you love what you do and you love the people that you work with, you'll find passion in any job you have. Excellent. And so what challenges did you maybe face in the sciences? Because I'm assuming, you know, I, I don't really know too many people that are very well-versed in science at such a young age. How did you relate to other people? As a kid, I kind of grew up, I, I was a little bit of a black sheep in my life. I've always had a different perspective on life. I've had my perspective. As a young kid, I came off very, very stubborn because I said, look, if that doesn't make sense to me, I don't want to do it. I think when I was younger, I really wanted to have more of an open experience, but just the way that we are as a society, I think we kind of think of society as, okay, let's conform to one thing. I think everything is very abstract. You can get to the end a whole bunch of different ways. And people sure. want people to conform to one way of thinking. And I think it's very constrictive and it doesn't allow people the, the creative freedom to be their best selves. You know, addition isn't one plus one. Addition could be one plus three minus two. And it's the same end result. And being able to teach that way of abstractly coming up with a way to solve a problem your own unique way is the best way to solve problems because it's what allows you to come up with new ideas, right? So creativity is all about new things that have never been thought of. And if you want to come up with new things, you can't do things the old way. And if we force people into this bubble of, hey, I think we should be doing it this way, you're never going to get that creative freedom. And so one of the things that, you know, our team has really strived to do, and I think we do a good job of it. Uh, we had three interns this summer that phenomenal researchers, amazing scientists and amazing people too. And we just told them, Hey guys, here's the vision. You know, I want you to, to figure this out. And I, we would tell them, look, I don't care how you get there. I just need you to get here at the end. It's, it's seeing them be able to do that, essentially. It's giving them a safe space to grow where they're allowed to fail. They're allowed to make mistakes. And then they can use that to grow. That's the kind of environment that we strive to, to foster within our team because that's how you get the most creative minds is people who are given the freedom to come up with their own way of doing things. You kind of talked about implementing creativity with mm -hmm. some of the people that work with you, but how did you begin incorporating creativity in your academic life? How did you get through those challenges or hurdles with conforming? I think a lot of people view 
success as being stubborn or, you know, refusing to give up. For me, my resilience was more built upon the fact that I really was too stubborn. I said, look, I see a need. I see something that I think needs to change. I just wanted to to make that change. And to me, that making that change was so important that I was willing to deal with all kinds of failures and heartaches and whatever else it was in the way, because to me, that's all I want to do. It's, I see that end goal. And sometimes the end goal is perfection. And I, I tell this to a lot of people, look, I don't like setting goals for myself. Some people it's really important because they'll hit that goal. And if they don't hit the goal, they get discouraged. If you fail that goal, then you'll get discouraged. You'll lose morale and then you won't be able to keep going. And that's why they say, you know, set realistic goals. For me, I'd much rather set such an unrealistic goal that I'm always stretching myself. I'm never in my comfort zone because whenever I set too realistic of a goal, I'll hit that goal and then stop trying because I feel, okay, I did that thing. We can be done now. And for me, it's always been about stretching myself. And one of the best career advices that I got the other day, always make sure you're outside of your comfort zone because if you're, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And it's, it's stressful and it's hard and it's difficult to do. And I'm not telling everybody in the world that they should do it because it's not for everybody. Hmm. But if you really want to master something, make sure that you're always uncomfortable because the minute that you're comfortable, that's a learning opportunity that you're missing out on. Again, you know, very successful person here. You also won a war at the Department of Energy, right? Mm -hmm. How did it feel when you won that reward? It was both really humbling, but really exciting because what it tells me is, Hey, look, we're doing something right. And you're on the right track. And that's, it's always great to get that confirmation that, Hey, we're not wasting people's time or money because the truth is this is from department of energy. This is people's tax money and people's tax money. There's accountability, right? Because we all pay taxes. And for me, I, I think that's the most humbling part is the fact that people entrust us with their resources to do something that's really productive for them. And that's what we strive to do here is to make sure that everything we're doing isn't wasted time, money, or effort. Uh, we want to make sure that it has a real impact that it has, you know, it can affect people's lives. A lot of our work is all about fighting, you know, climate change and making sure that we have good energy technologies to fight climate change. And for me, that's, that's what was so exciting about it is, hey, I finally get to be part of this really big thing that as a kid, I thought there's no way, you know, climate change, I can't do anything about that. It's too big for me. But now it's kind of realizing that, yeah, I can contribute this little piece here and I can contribute this little piece here. And we work with an amazing team. The people at Department of Energy are amazingly supportive, a really, really great team of really smart people. And it's a partnership with them. And I think that's one thing that people don't realize is that when you have those partnerships, you're going to instill success just by design because it's all about partnering with the right people and making sure you have the right team to do whatever it is that you want to do. Because to me, it doesn't matter the technical challenge. You can solve any technical challenge. The key is finding the right people and the right partnerships to do it. Besides, you know, your daily work, what other sort of endeavors are you part of like when you're relaxing or just you know outside of GE as a whole? I can be a really boring person. I can be an exciting person. It depends. So a lot of my hobbies are my work. You know, I'm very passionate about my work and it's not for everybody. And I don't want people to feel like you can't be successful without being a workaholic because you absolutely can. 
I think I just like doing it so much that I, I do that as a hobby. You know, there's some weeks where, you know, I'll work 80 hours a week and it's just because it's so fun and I refuse to give up. Other weeks it's, you know, I realize, hey, look, I'm going to burn out. I need to take some time off. To really speak for the culture here at GE, that's what I love about it. It's very flexible. We can kind of have that work-life balance kind of determined by who we are. I think a lot of people are so worried about work-life balance because you're not allowed to bring your personal life into your work life. Uh, and that's one thing that I love about my job is I can do both. I can bring my work life home and I can bring my personal life to work. And it's, it's not just acceptable, it's kind of encouraged. And again, if we treat our work family as our family, then it's almost like I get to hang out with friends every day. And so I'm not worried about what I do outside of work. Now, that being said, I do have a few passions outside of work. And one of those passions is karaoke. When I was in graduate school, karaoke was like the one thing where I felt like I could just be myself. I could just let go. I think that's what I love about karaoke is you create this really accepting environment where it doesn't matter if you're a good singer, just go up and sing. And as long as you're having fun, everybody will cheer you on. And, you know, it's not about how you sing. It's about how you perform, if that makes sense. There's other things I do, too. Like, I, I'm part of the golf league here at work, and I come in last place every year. And to me, again, it's not about going to play golf because you think you're going to win. It's about going to play golf because it's, it's almost like a thing that you want to develop in your life outside of work. This has been an amazing interview. Very in-depth. You know, you gave some very interesting things there about how science can be applied now to simple things like candy. Do you have any sort of concluding final words you'd like to kind of give to the audience? You know, I'm, I'm going to say something really cheesy, which is, you know, science rocks. But uh, beyond that, it, it rocks for me, right? I'm very passionate about what I do. I love what I do. I love my team. If you're following your dreams and you're failing continuously, keep following your dreams. Uh, because <laughs> I think a lot of people will say, follow your dreams, but they don't actually mean it. And they'll say, hey, man, why are you doing that? You know, you're not successful. Like a lot of people will criticize me, but I would not give up my experience for anything. And, and that's the thing is, you know, follow your dreams, but also recognize that life is a journey and you wouldn't be where you're at if you didn't have previous life experiences. So, you know, like hashtag no regrets. I absolutely believe in that because every life experience you have builds you as a person and just embrace that and embrace who you are. Excellent, excellent. And now just a few quick shout outs here before we end this mm -hmm. off. So the first person we have here is Judy Ryan. She's sort of the CEO of LifeWork Systems. She's our affiliate and collaborative partner. And her goal is to sort of go out and help improve businesses, HR infrastructures. We have our brand new Jimbo Paris services. This is basically a service-based business where we provide guest findings, podcasts, and we also edit content and do production for you as well. So if you need that as well, check us out to subscribe to us now. Our YouTube channel is growing. This will be on Roku TV as well as all of our other episodes. So check us out there as well too. All right. Thank you again. Awesome. Thank you, Jimbo. This has been great. I appreciate it. Thanks. Keep doing you. Great. I'm Jimbo Paris. This is the Jimbo Paris Show.
Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Parish Show. 